can't even think that I was strong. I was so desperate. But I guess that desperation yeah. is a, is a form of strength because there's an acknowledgement yeah. in one. If one can say, "I really need help. I'm desperate," there is enormous strength in the in that ability to do that. I didn't see it at the time, but in retrospect, I realized that my surrender was my strength, not my weakness. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober podcast, episode 97. My name is Janet Gorond. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last six years, we've helped hundreds of people to do just that. We created Tribe Sober because we believe it's really hard to change your drinking habits alone. So at Tribe Sober, we're all about community. And each week we feature a community voice, just to give you a flavour of the awesomeness of our tribe. I think planning is really important. I, I find the journaling really valuable and I absolutely um, have immersed myself, less even now so, but in all the quick lit stuff, the reading, the podcasts, and obviously the neuroplasty side of it completely appealed to me. You know, I've been teaching, lecturing that for years and I've never applied it to myself and my daily drinking. So that's that's sort of like a, you know, revelation. Yeah. So if you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. My guest this week has an extraordinary story of recovery to share. She's gone from a homeless heroin addict living on the streets to a highly respected public figure here in South Africa. Melinda Ferguson is an award-winning South African journalist and author of best-selling memoirs, Smacked, Hooked and Crashed. She's also a publisher and runs writing courses to help people to find their voice. I began by asking Melinda to introduce herself. Okay, well, I guess I always introduce myself as a, as a recovering addict. Um, that's probably my biggest um, achievement. And then the other things that I do, I, I, I became a journalist when I got clean, worked for magazines, then decided to go back to varsity, did my honours in publishing, not really sure that I wanted to even do publishing, landed up being uh, miraculously kind of finding myself with my own imprint, Melinda Ferguson Books at the moment. And I uh, started publishing up a storm. Also have written um, three of my own memoirs, co-written another four books. So you can see I've been really, really busy since I got clean and sober. Absolutely, absolutely. It seems to happen with a lot of people, a lot of us. I mean, I'm the same. I seem to to work all the time rather than drinking all the time now. I know. It's amazing how much it's... time we wasted when we were using. Oh, and you did ask me where I live. I live in Cape Town. I'm a Joburg-born girl or rather live in Joburg most of my life. I've also recently found myself a beautiful pandemic hideaway in the um, sort of Cedarburg Mountains, uh, and that's where I run away to every week. Fantastic. So that's obviously your, your happy place these days. Yeah. So let's go back in time, Melinda. Now, I remember you telling me on another conversation that we had that your mum was an alcoholic, and you had your first taste of alcohol when you were just about nine or ten years old. You know, how did that that first taste of alcohol, how was it for you and how did your drinking develop as you went through your teenage years? I found alcohol to be like a, a kind of a piece of heaven. 
when I st- when I started drinking, and it was more like tasting it, finding myself drawn to my mother's liquor cabinet, having watched my mom um, drink daily. After my dad died, that's my you know my memory at four. But when when was my mum started drinking? She might have been drinking before that, but that's kind of when I remember it. And uh, alcohol became um, a confidence booster. I mean, I think I had a lot of psychological issues as a kid, but I was someone who always appeared confident. And I, I you know I, when I look back on my using, it was definitely alcohol inspired. I started drinking a lot at high school. Taking alcohol to 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 school, hiding it in the rose bushes, drinking at every single opportunity, having a lot of fun. It felt like I was, um, you know, always in control, always the life and soul of the party. I was I was very clever as well at school, so it was kind of difficult for anybody to call me out. I'm very rebellious. Went to varsity, carried on drinking, smoking dope, just did the whole. You know, thinking that I, I I was having a great time. So when you had your your first hit of heroin at, at the age of twenty four, I believe, mm-hmm. um, were you under the influence of you know booze and weed, or was it a rational decision? I want to try this stuff. Yeah, something strange had happened to me at around the age of twenty one when I started smoking marijuana furiously. I suddenly decided that alcohol was really shit. My mother had traumatized me, I think, as an alcoholic. I, I, I'd hated my mom being drunk. And I suddenly was like one of those alcoholics who decided to switch to, 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 to other substances. And so that was, I wasn't, I wasn't using alcohol at the time. And I started, when I started using heroin, I was using dope. Okay, so there you were, 24, first hit of heroin. And we talk a lot, don't we, about functioning alcoholics. I know I was certainly one for years a bit less about functioning addicts. So I was just wondering how long you managed to hold everything together before it it took over. If I, you know, while I was in addiction, I thought I was holding everything together while I was standing on the streets of Hillbrow soliciting myself. You know, it's amazing the levels of denial that one one, um, kind of talks oneself into. So if if I look at it rationally now, I think probably for the first two or three years, there was a semblance of normality. We were still earning a living as filmmakers. We were still, we were using our budgets to smoke heroin and crack as well, but we somehow managed to still produce. I kept thinking it was just something we would be able to stop whenever we felt like it. Then I fell pregnant. And that was the time when obviously most people, I think, would say, okay, we've had our fun in the sun. Let's stop now. But, but that was really an indication, I think, that I was deeply addicted and deeply reliant on these two substances. So I could not stop during two pregnancies I had, you know, trying to get to rehab, stopping, then using again. And the whole, the whole cycle of kind of denial a bargaining, carrying on using, going tomorrow, I'll stop. You know, always the tomorrow, always that tomorrow that never came until it really had become very clear, I think, that that to everyone around us, that my husband and I were completely and absolutely unmanageable. And we had two small babies. Uh, we were living in a terrible town in the northwest province called Clarkstalk. And we were completely reliant on his family for money, but we couldn't stop. And it just carried on and on and on until, I mean, my children were taken away from me by my mother-in-law. That didn't stop me. I then decided that everybody was just disgusting and evil and, and horrible. And I decided to use that justification to go and live in Hillbrow with my dealer. Uh, with my dealers. Um, And so that cycle of more, 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 more rational thinking out the window until I landed up literally being picked up by my family and being taken out of there without any free will of my own. Right, right. So they carted you off to rehab. Well, to a homeless farm. <laughs> Let's not call it rehab. It was not rehab. Yes, yes. I, I remember yeah. now in the book, yeah. it was a farm. So tell was, us about the farm. Oh, now the farm is where alcohol came back. Um, <laughs> the farm was 
full of alcoholics, you know, but like they, this was a homeless farm. It was for people who had literally been sitting on park benches. And during winter, which is when I arrived, I think it was July that I got rescued out of Hillbrow and it was still bitterly cold. And you could see all the park bench alcoholics had just gravitated to the farm because it was too cold to sit on the bench. It was a it was a Christian farm. It was highly like fundamentally Christian. I remember, of course, now not being able to score. The first thing I did was get a quart of beer. And then I just, I found ways and means to get alcohol on this farm. And that was when my my, my, my lust for alcohol just kind of like intensified. I found a way to score Dache as well. And for the first, I think, four weeks, I was using up a storm Finally got bust smoking a joint and I was told to leave. And I, I said in my first book, Smacked, um, which describes my whole journey into, into heroin and uh, alcoholism, heroin, crack, all of that addiction, that basically if, if, if you kicked off a homeless farm, where the hell are you going to land up next? Because the next place was literally on the street, back, back on the street. So something clicked on that farm. I think if one looks at the kind of 12-step program, if you look at like religion, if you look at spiritual kind of thinking, it, I guess it was a spiritual awakening. But it was more like a kind of, I like to call it my, my, my desperation awakening because I could see there was nowhere else to go. And yeah. it, this realization intimated the idea that you need to stop. It was like a, it was like a huge thud. That went, maybe you've got a problem. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And, and, and where did you go from the farm? I, I got clean and sober on the farm. And then I was sort of whiling my way, building a church, doing crazy things there. And my, my, my sweet, beautiful son with my ex-husband, who was still my husband at the time, they came to visit and it broke my heart. You know, I saw my James... And, I, you know, he hadn't seen me for probably about seven or eight months because I'd been using for all that time while, while my husband was getting clean. And just seeing him and realizing what I was actually really doing, being this hippie on a farm, not looking after my kids, it was another awakening. And then I decided, as terrified as I was, that I needed to go back home. But home was my mother, the alcoholic's home. Um, my husband had already left me for another woman and I had nowhere to go but my mom. And so the first few months of my recovery were spent staring at alcohol all over the house, watching my mom and my stepfather drinking, going to NA meetings and AA every night, literally just, just desperately waiting for the clock to turn six or seven o'clock. Um, I had no money, no um, car couldn't drive, no clothes that were of any use. I mean, I looked like a complete beggar. And that's how my recovery really started. Wow. Wow. You must have been so strong, Melinda, to be in a house with alcohol everywhere and oh. going off to your meetings. You found people you could relate to there, I guess. Yeah, they were my saviors. I mean, I, don't, I, I think I was, I, I can't even think that I was strong. I was so desperate. But I guess that desperation yeah. is, a, is a form of strength because there's an acknowledgement yeah. in one. If one can say, I really need help, I'm desperate. There is enormous strength in, the, in that ability to do that. I didn't see it at the time, but in retrospect, I realized that my surrender was my strength, not my weakness. Yeah. And um, that whole yeah. beautiful and thing of surrendering. To, to finally saying, I've got a problem, I need help, please, I'm desperate, can you please help me? And all the beautiful people in that organization were there to help me and pick me up. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. Yeah, yeah. It's such a relief, isn't it, when you meet other people that, that just get what you're going through. And I'm sure oh. they became like your family, those people exactly. at that meeting. and you. Talking about your what was going on in your life must have been a, a great comfort for you. And and how long would you say your recovery? I mean, obviously we're all still in recovery, but 
for you to start feeling okay again and, and getting your children back and building a life again? I started seeing my boys quite soon after I went to my mom, uh, but I was like able to do two hours a day. And then, you know, the need and the crying and the, you know, two toddlers, uh, my, my son, my, my baby ha- had not even recognized me when we first saw each other again, because he had been seven months when, when he had been taken from me. So that first year was really difficult. Um, it w- I was definitely not functional within the first year, but I tried. I couldn't work. I was very depressed, very suicidal. I kept on just thinking, if you just make it through today and you just go to another meeting, you know, you'll be okay. And that is how, it, it, and then my one year key ring, when I got one year sober, one year clean, that was like a miracle. I did start sensing a, an awakening of the spirits and of ability within probably about two years of, of, yeah. of recovery. And I think by the time I was five years clean, then things were really, really showing some results. I always tell people that, that this thing is a long process and it depends on how much you've messed up. I think for people that are functioning alcoholics who might just be late for work and who are waking up with hangovers and whose wives or husbands are, piss, are, are pissed off with them because they're getting drunk and embarrassing, that recovery, I think, can be quite a lot quicker. But if you've lost sure, your kids sure. and you've lost your livelihood, you've lost your marriage, you've lost trust, you've lost your own sense of self, that journey can take, I mean, I think I'm still on that journey of putting the yeah, pieces yeah. back. When you think about it, you were addicted kind of big time for seven, eight years. So it, it makes sense that it would make, it would take that amount of time to to recover from, you know, the worst of it at least. Yeah. And I mean, if you think of me starting to have drank, uh, started drinking when I was nine, we can make it a lot longer. Yeah. You know, my my, my yeah. teenage years were definitely ones of total alcoholism so I'd been using I got clean when and sober when I was 33 I'd say I'd been using for about 20 what 28 years 20 20 something years <laughs> yeah yeah I interviewed a doctor recently that works in in rehabs and she told me that they have this kind of rule of thumb there that for every year that we are you know using addicted whatever it'll take a month of recovery. So, you know, what you were saying, so it's like 20 months, you know, to to get through the, the worst of it. So I thought that was quite interesting because people, I mean, I find that in our group, people are very impatient, you know, after one month or two months of not drinking, they say, well, I still feel crap, you know, what's going on? Are you sure it's worth it? You really have to hang in there. Janet, that was one of the things that really helped me. I very quickly realized that I was in for the long haul. Um, As impatient as I was with my sort of slow development compared to people around me, and that was one of the things I did do initially. I did compare myself to other people who had a lot of material things. And materially, I was really on on, on 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 the kind of homeless vibe. The more I just kept internalizing my own sense of achievement, and that was a really helpful thing, was when I started going, you've gotten up today and you've walked to the kitchen and you've combed your hair and you've read a book or tried to at least, and you've gone to a meeting and this has been a successful day. And so that sense of um, sort of success started becoming more available to me because I stopped being as hard on myself as what I'd initially been. Yeah, yeah. Those small steps, uh, they're building up your self-worth again, aren't they? Which obviously one loses completely. So I was quite interested that when you got clean, you actually lived with a really heavy drinker, didn't you? For a long time, you know like wasn't it eight nine years and I just wondered how that worked you know were were you never triggered by uh, him drinking away there you know I told myself I wasn't and I never actually felt like drinking while I was with him but I think that there must have been some kind of lunatic sitting in my head thinking that was okay and I, I mean, I'm going to be quite blatant now. I think that I I was in complete sex sex addiction with him. 
So just because you get clean and sober doesn't mean you don't uh, let your addict part get 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 away to manifest in other places. So I justified a lot of his behavior by knowing that I was going to get a good shag. And so <laughs> as, as, as I love it. Yeah. So so that's what I think I did because I've done a lot of looking at that relationship, you know, now that I'm not with them with him and I haven't been with that guy for about seven seven years, eight years. And I, I realized completely that it was like a bargaining system I had in me that like ignore his drinking as long as you get, you're getting your fix in another place. Interesting. And do you think you were kind of drawn to him because your mum was an alcoholic? Did it feel kind of safe? Completely. It felt so normal. And that's what I often um, think about is how childhood trauma, whatever happens in our childhood, we become programmed to find it normal. And it almost makes sense that you start, like I've often thought that this guy was like my mother, just he wasn't, he had a dick. And um, his drinking was as though it was complete wallpaper in my life because I'd I'd grown up with that around me. And it took a lot of um, self-searching to see how, in a way, compromised my childhood had made me in terms of making good decisions for myself. And that just by getting clean and sober didn't necessarily make me someone who would start making wonderful and healthy decisions just because I'd stopped drinking. In fact, I've realized that so much of my behavior in my recovery has been a reliving of um, toxic stuff. Uh, sometimes people say to me, um, oh, well, you know, my mom's an alcoholic, my dad's an alcoholic, it's in the family, I've got no choice, I'm bound to be a drinker. What would you say to someone like that? Because I believe there is hope and I've seen it lots of times. I think we must accept that most of us who have um, alcoholic uh, problems are from families who have alcoholic problems. I'd say it's probably about 90% of the addicts and the alcoholics that I've met have all come from drinking families. So it is a very defeatist way to, I think, see see that as though it is your lot in life. It's exactly that reason um, I was inspired to, to change the cycle. You know, I was inspired to actually say, what happens if I stop? Don't I give my sons, my two beautiful sons, a much better chance of not taking on this behavior? And amazingly, I mean, I've got a 23 and 25-year-old. They've just turned 23 and 25. Neither of them drink. They've got it in the family, but they haven't seen the behavior from their parents because yeah. both both my ex-husband and I have been clean and sober for, for over 20 years. And it's amazing to, to to really see how much environment does play a huge factor, I think, when we bring up our kids. Yeah, so it's that's a huge reward, isn't it? I mean, not only do we look after ourselves and recreate our future, but we you know, have a huge impact on our children's future because we're going to role model something so much better. So it must be wonderful for you to see your sons healthy and thriving. Oh, it has been the biggest gift because, of course, in the first few years of their um, development, I was convinced I'd brain damaged my children by using um, drugs in, in my pregnancy, mainly heroin. I, I, I was convinced that I'd, I, I had somehow impacted them so badly that they were going to have learning disabilities, that they were going to have behavioral disabilities, that they were both going to be addicts. My youngest son is doing his master's in computer big data engineering in Amsterdam. My my oldest son finished university, is one of the sweetest, kindest, talented filmmakers. And it's amazing to, to once I lost that feeling that I'd messed them up, they were able to actually flourish. And I tell so many mothers who, who addict or alcoholic mothers is that if you just give it a chance, it's amazing how kids are able to develop out of those terrible beginnings that they start they start with. Yeah, yeah. 
I'm so glad it's had such a happy ending for you. So let's talk about your amazing book that uh, many of our crowd have certainly read and uh, enjoyed, if that's the right word. (laughs) I wanted to ask you about writing that because that was your first book, I think, wasn't it? What stage at your recovery were you? How many years in? And was it a cathartic experience? Was it painful? Just talk to us a bit about writing that book. I always wrote during my addiction. It was something that kind of kept me from killing myself every morning. You know, when I was withdrawing and I was feeling so terrible, I'd sort of sit at a computer and try and type out. So I had a lot of material that I'd gathered over the years really just imagining that one day I was going to die and nobody would ever read anything that I wrote. But it was for me, really, that I just kept on recording what I was going through. So my first book, Smacked, was in many ways an accumulation of material that I'd collected. I always tell writers, you know, don't throw away those little pieces of paper. Don't throw away your journals. Keep them going because you never know what what might be called, you, you might be called to do with it. The book, I was given a publishing deal out of the blue, very miraculously. I'm not going to go into all the details of that, but I was very lucky because someone came to me and said, we've read an article you wrote in a magazine and we want you to write a book. And so I was given a deadline. I think it was a six-month deadline, and I just threw myself into it. I, I threw myself into it. I didn't censor myself. It was really a raw retelling full of all confessions of the terrible things that I'd done. And, of course, because I liked writing, it was also written, I think, very viscerally. I don't know if it was cathartic. It was more like I was just driven. You know, I was driven by the deadline and I was driven to tell the story. When I finally finished, I was completely shocked um, that I'd actually done it. And also I was completely convinced that everybody was going to say it was one of the worst books they'd ever read because I'd now lost (laughs) all my confidence. I totally started getting into that space of, oh my God, what have I done? But it was now, you know, out of my hands, in the editor's hands. I was very amazed and, and hugely, I guess, blessed, hashtag blessed, um, when the response to that book was what it was, it really did yeah. well. It, it was it was a book that I think was one of the first to be written in South Africa about addiction. It was really b- welcomed by so many people, addicts, parents, people that were just keen to understand what addiction was, to understand what alcoholism was. And so that book just got wings and it took, it took me out of my – sense of being a complete failure into being someone that I suddenly felt proud about. I was amazed at what I'd kind of put together. And for the first time, I think I started feeling like that maybe I could actually love myself. Yeah. It was, it was like a springboard for you, wasn't it? To, to the rest of your life, really. It's just a, yeah. a foundation of, you know, achievement that you could build on. And it's, it's I mean, a brilliant it, it, book. How many copies have you sold now? I often try and get the exact figures because it's difficult to get the exact ones, but it's in the region of between twenty-five to 30,000 copies of that book. Um, it's been reprinted a lot. I've recently, last year, brought yeah. out the 20-year clean and sober edition, so it got another life, and it just keeps on going. It's one of those books, I think, yeah. um, that will just carry on selling. I mean, not as much as it did in the beginning, obviously, but 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 it just keeps on going. It's like essential reading, isn't it? I'm sure they've got it in all the rehabs <laughs> in the library. They, they do have. have it in rehabs and they sometimes have it in secondhand bookshops. And I think, I wonder which addict pawned this book when they were just like desperate for a fix because um, I hate that oh. my book has been sold into secondhand bookshops, but actually it's a good thing because I just think people must all hold on to their books. So you mentioned journaling, didn't you? And and we always say to people in our community, you know, keep a journal, journal your recovery. And obviously, you know, you're a writer and you he- you teach writing, you're passionate about writing. But for anybody that kind of struggles to write, can you try and, and explain why writing is, is a healing thing to do and how it helps us to process our emotions? So I think like having a journal or a notebook and meeting yourself on the page is 
one of the most therapeutic things one can do. I, I, I mean, I've often thought that I've, I've found a lot more out about myself by writing than sitting in a therapist's chair um, and, and paying a, a fortune of money to speak out my life. Because when you speak, uh, you kind of censor yourself. There's a, there's a consciousness about it. I think when one starts getting into the practice of writing and self-writing I'm talking about, you start almost finding that the page becomes your confidant and it's a it's your secret life in a way that starts emerging and a secret self that that perhaps would be buried unless one actually sat there and and penned it down i, I you know i've just seen so much conscious uh, healing happening amongst people who write write their stuff down and revelation. I think you get revelations when you write and you can make it a a practice. It's almost like you you have someone that you can trust and you can't tell anybody else that stuff and you're able to just deal with it on the page. Yeah. I don't know if you read that book, The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. But she says, wake up in the morning and just write, you know, do your morning pages, doesn't she? And then chuck it in the bin if you want to. But it just, it magic happens, doesn't it? It just starts that process. It does. So apart, apart from writing down our, our stuff, our stories, I think that saying it out loud as well has a real kind of healing process. And I, obviously they do it at AA and we do it at our workshops. You know, we begin by people sharing their stories and obviously they get very emotional sometimes. And you can see that this is the first time that that person's ever said it out loud and even perhaps acknowledged to themselves just how unhappy alcohol particularly that it's been making them. So I really believe we've got to find a way to kind of ditch the shame and talk about what we've been through. And you've been such a a wonderful example of doing that. We've got to hashtag ditch the shame. That's another one for you. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. Shame is an incredibly um, counterproductive emotion. It sends us into paralysis. It sends us into judgment. And often that which we are ashamed of, nobody else even gives a shit. Our lives are actually so, you know, we, we always, there's so many people like, what will they say? What will they think? But who are they? And uh, yeah. most people and- are feeling that way. So nobody's even got time or energy to be sitting like judging. And if they're judging, well, that's their issue. That's what I think. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. That's www.tribesober.com. Exactly. I wanted to ask you, uh, obviously, I know that you don't drink alcohol these days, but are all people that have been addicted to drugs told to stay away from alcohol? I just wanted to understand that better. I wasn't sure. Yeah. In, in, um, in, in the 12-step program, in NA specifically, we have something that says alcohol is a drug. We must abstain from all drugs in order to recover. I've seen quite okay. a lot of addicts, cocaine or heroin addicts, who decide, no, no, alcohol's fine. Dr- uh, heroin is my problem. And then they go off on drinking binges and then they completely fall apart and relapse usually back on their drug. So I think that it's not, you know, I've always had an issue in a way of AA and NA being so separate because I think addiction is our problem. It's not the substance we use. It's the fact that we are addicted to something that makes us change who we think we are or how we feel. It's about changing feelings. And so whether one's drinking or whether one's smoking uh, crack, it is all about trying to escape from the self. Um, And so, yeah, yeah, I mean, if I'd carried on drinking, I sure as hell would not be sitting here today. Yeah, yeah, because although people don't accept it sometimes, of course alcohol is a drug and we have to stay away from drugs, I guess, don't we? I wanted to ask you, I don't know if you remember this, Melinda, but I interviewed you years ago. I was asking you how you cope when people try to uh, insist that you have a glass of wine with them. And you gave me this really funny answer that I'm often quoting to people and replaying it. Do you remember what you said? I do. I mean, 
in my first year, it was amazing how many people were trying to give me a drink. And uh, I remember being, I think it was at a party or something, and this guy kept on saying, come on, have a drink, have a drink. And I said, okay, I'm going to take your car keys. I'm going to drive your car to Hilbra. I'm going to pawn your car for crack, uh, and then you'll never see it again. And he basically said, don't worry, you don't have to have a drink. So that was the story. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Yeah, it's so funny because so many people, I mean, I was one of them. I think they they just, when, when you give up drinking whatever, you, you feel quite fragile. Well, I certainly did. And you certainly don't want to be the center of attention and you think, oh, everyone's going to ask me why I'm not drinking. And people really worry about that and it keeps them trapped, you know. So I just say if, if you really, you know, feel fragile, just say, oh, you're driving or you're on meds or something. But gradually we get more and more confident. And I often quote that that answer at a workshop, you know, I say one day you're going to feel confident enough just to sort that person out. This pressure of like, why you're not drinking? I think not drinking is much harder than not taking heroin. Not yes, taking heroin. Alcohol's everywhere. <laughs> it is everywhere. No one's trying to say, come on, you need some heroin. But everybody's going, come on, why are you being such a, you know, party pooper? Why, what's wrong with you? And I think it's often uh, people that drink a lot, they think you're judging them, that you're not drinking. So their own guilt starts coming out. And then the next thing you're kind of being egged on by everybody. It's ridiculous. It is. It's mad. And uh, I'm sure when, if you ever say to people, oh, you know, I gave, um, I used to take heroin, but I gave up, they'll say, oh, well done you. How amazing, you know, but, but people like us, if we say we don't drink, they go, what, you know, surely you can have just one. And as you say, you know, the pressure is endless, but of course it's all the marketing and the, the peer pressure. It's, it's just everywhere, alcohol, but fortunately hard drugs aren't everywhere but people do put them in boxes don't they they say oh well alcohol you know everybody drinks but hard drugs wow you know they're dreadful but if you look at the stats i think three million people a year die worldwide from alcohol related causes and a fraction of that from hard drugs you know alcohol kills so many more people and does so much damage to society i mean do you uh, remember did you see those stats in south africa in lockdown so many lives were saved yeah i mean there's an <laughs> madness, amazing you know. a guy called professor david nutt a uk based oh i don't even know what his title is but he's very clever and he's done these damage assessments of damages and alcohol sits streets above societal relationship yep. physical like accidents all those things and yet it is still the one that is legal it is celebrated it is encouraged and you've got to start wondering like what the hell you know is going on that it can be so ignored and um so celebrated and yet be so damaging yeah, it's amazing. And I know that study and he uh, damaged to society. It was number one, but also the most damaging drugs. There was a, a table of 10 and I think it was still number four, you know, it was above cocaine for the harm that it, it does to individuals. But yeah, I mean, it's it's money, isn't it? It's just profit before people and the liquor industry pumping away and the way we're, you know, it's glamorized and the way women in particular are targeted, aren't we, for the wine, you know, you've got to have a glass of wine if you're a woman, otherwise you're not enjoying your life. What's going on and the mommy juice and thing I mean, it's it's so clever what they've done but it's it's destroying a lot of people so let's let's go back to your memoirs because you you spread your story really over three group uh, three books haven't you so we've got smacked and then we've got hooked and then we've got crashed and uh, when you were talking about you know looking like a homeless person and then there you were a decade or two later driving a ferrari <laughs> and still as mad as ever yeah. <laughs> oh, definitely. Well, we don't want that to change, do we? So, Smacked, uh, just um, talk us through what each book covers, you know, obviously uh, briefly, and so that people that haven't read them all, like I have, they, they know what's, uh, what the stories are about. So, Smacked, in a nutshell, was my harrowing addiction to uh, heroin and crack and every other drug and alcohol and all the rest, and my kind of step-by-step -step miraculous recovery. And that was kind of the first, you know, I wrote it in my five-year 
uh, when I was five years uh, sober and clean. So it had kind of tracked my childhood and did all the drugging and all that stuff. The second book I wrote when I was 10 years clean and sober, and that was to do with that relationship I had with the alcoholic. And it was my intense relationship addiction, and it was called Hooked. And it was just this insanity of being incredibly codependent, a stalker, a mad person desperate for love. You know, I said it was a sex thing, but it's actually, I think for women, it's often love addiction. So that book tracked, um, it was called The Highs and Lows of a Sober Addict. And someone like me, who you would have thought that by 10 years clean and sober, she was going to be like a perfect human being, but I was far from that. And then uh, when I was 15 years clean and sober, I, I, I was uh, working as a motoring journalist, which I still do. I haven't even spoken about that. And I got to test a 3.2 million rand California Ferrari for the day, had a terrible accident. And so that book kind of started with the accident. And then I was sent to a clinic. And it was like the aftermath of a, of a crisis, of a chaotic event how I spin out of control and realize that the material is the thing that's actually keeping me hostage. The material, the, the search, I think for a lot of addicts, we, we fix our art outsides, but fixing our insides is a lot more daunting. And that book, it's actually my favorite, I think, crashed because it was more mature, more looking for answers, more searching in a way for some type of spiritual understanding of what the hell is going on inside me and in the world. And I'm now busy writing a fourth one. I know I have a title. It's called Bamboozled. So I've got smacked, hooked, crashed, and next year it will be Bamboozled. I think it's hard for me to speak about that book yet, but it's definitely going to be tracking the insanity of the pandemic of 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 this time we find ourselves it starts with a murder a murder two doors away from me and i think the book is going to go into a lot of investigation into personal freedom kind of control ty tyrannical behavior from governments and uh, yeah, I'm I'm on a journey with it at the moment, and uh, I'm just seeing where it's taking me. But I'm very excited that I'm writing again. Well, which one was it? Crashed where you you talked you were kind of writing about it as it happened. I think meeting your current partner, you were having this online conversation. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, I met um, my current partner on Tinder, and that was in Crashed, and that was a, a, a miraculous kind of more healthy relationship than I'd ever had and I'm still busy having. Um, very challenging to be with a German psychiatrist. But then I sort of thought if the universe wanted to give me anything, they needed to give me a German psychiatrist. <laughs> Who wanted to buy a wine farm. I hope you've talked him out of that. <laughs> yeah, he hasn't. He, I mean, he drinks, but he doesn't drink like the, ex, the other one did. I mean, he drinks normally, has a glass of wine, doesn't fall over. You know, he's a very proper, like, you know, those people who can drink, we hate them, but there are some, there are a lot I of know. people who can do this really manageably. And I just say, good luck to you. I mean, I'm in the motoring industry. Alcohol is everywhere. I can't sit there going, oh God, I can't go to a gig because people are drinking. So I've just learned to live with it, but it doesn't, it doesn't make me want to drink because I've kind of surrendered that I'm not, I'm not kind of, I have totally surrendered that I don't drink. Belinda, if someone's listening to this and they're, you know, back where, where you were years ago and they're, you know, using or, or drinking perhaps really excessively and they know that they they should get clean but they've just got no idea how to start where to start and they're just feeling really low what what would you say to them how do we get started on this journey because it's the hardest thing isn't it you know that decision to actually stop I think is one that is delayed and delayed and delayed so many times by people who've got issues I, I always encourage people to, to go to a 12-step meeting, but sometimes people can't do that. There's a lot of shame involved in, in admitting I'm an alcoholic. You know, to sit down and, and honestly say, is my life going to get any different if I carry on doing this? 
Is my life actually going to improve? I've never met someone who stopped drinking or stopped using whose life got worse. Bad things have happened. You know, my mom died when I was sober. My um, boyfriend I caught in bed with a Dutch lesbian when I was sober. (laughs) Those are the things that happen in our lives. But my life has incrementally changed on the most miraculous level. So I think it sometimes is a very small and almost silent realization of what happens if I give this a try? What happens if I actually see if I, for the next 24 hours, can just go without doing this? Nobody can tell anybody to get sober. I've, I've realized in all the, the years now that I've been in recovery is it has to come from within the self. It has to be the click that says, enough. I've had enough. Yeah. And it's a beautiful thing to say, I've had enough and I don't have to carry on doing this. And yeah, uh, yeah, I would just encourage people to see what happens, you know, just go on an adventure and find another self that doesn't rely on drinking every day and doesn't rely on using every day. And, and, And the most amazing things happen to people, I think, in recovery. There's a beautiful saying of don't give up until the miracle happens. And sometimes one has to wait for a while before the miracle or the, you know, the benefits, the benefits might not come immediately, but if one just waits it out and just, you don't use, you don't drink, the miracle will surely happen. Thank you so much, Melinda. What a story you have to tell. Let me try and pull out some key points. Growing up in an alcoholic household, Melinda took to booze at an early age, describing it as a piece of heaven. However, as she got a bit older, she rejected alcohol as she hated seeing her mother drinking, so she actually turned towards hard drugs, taking her first hit of heroin at the age of 24. As a filmmaker, she managed to stay relatively functional for a couple of years. And she always had it in mind that she would be able to stop the heroin whenever she wanted to. I think a lot of us drinkers are like that. We think we could stop any time. It's only when we actually try to quit or even just to cut down that we realize that we've become totally dependent. When she got pregnant, Melinda realized that she was hooked and no, she couldn't stop. She continued to use throughout her two pregnancies, always planning to stop tomorrow. But of course, tomorrow never came. Her two babies were taken away from her, but even then she couldn't stop using. And rock bottom came from Melinda when she found herself living on the streets as an addict. Her family rescued her from that situation and moved her to a homeless farm, which happened to be full of alcoholics. So that's when alcohol reappeared in her life. When she was discovered drinking and smoking dacher at the farm, she was asked to leave. This was a real wake-up call. About to be made homeless from a farm for the homeless was her desperation awakening, as she calls it, and she finally accepted that she had a problem and she would have to stop using drugs. The only place she had to go was back home with her mum, where she had to cope with alcohol being in the house and seeing her mum and stepdad drinking every evening. At this point in her life, she had no money, no car, no decent clothes, but she did have an AA or an NA meeting to go to every single night, which kept her on track. At these meetings, she met her saviors, as she puts it. She surrendered, finally acknowledging that she needed help, something that we both agreed is the hardest thing of all. Melinda had got to the stage where enough is enough, I also remember getting to that stage where I thought, I just can't do this anymore. It's actually not a bad thing to get to this stage. And it makes me think of a quote from J.K. Rowling. She says, my rock bottom became the foundation for the rest of my life. Melinda found year one of her recovery extremely difficult. It was just a matter of getting through each day until her evening meeting She felt very depressed and was barely functional. After two years in recovery, she sensed what she calls an awakening of the spirit. And by five years, she was reconnecting with herself and getting real results. 
We talked about the length of time people spend in recovery and agreed that we have to be patients. It also varies a lot. Someone with a drinking problem who is able to hold down a job and a relationship is more likely to recover quickly than someone who's hit rock bottom due to hard drugs. It all depends on how much you've messed up, as Melinda put it. Have a listen to Tribe Sober podcast episode 61, which was released in September 2021. I'm talking to rehab doctor, Dr. Dawn, who explains that in the rehabs, they have a rule of thumb that it takes a month of recovery for every year that we've been using. Realizing that she was in it for the long haul helped Melinda and she stopped being so hard on herself. She stopped comparing herself with others, and she began to internalize and feel good about her achievements, however small they were. After getting clean, Melinda moved in with a very heavy drinker. She said it felt normal. She believes that whatever trauma we suffer as children, we become programmed to find that normal when we are adults. And of course, Melinda grew up with an alcoholic mom, so living with a drinker just felt like home. She believes that many alcoholics come from alcoholic families, but also believes that we can change that pattern, as she has with her sons who are in their early 20s and don't drink. We talked about her writing, Melinda always wrote during her recovery, and her first book, Smacked, was an accumulation of those writings. The success of Smacked took her out of feeling like a failure and gave her back her pride. She realized that she could learn to love herself. She took us through the themes of each of her three books, Smacked, Hooked and Crashed. Do get hold of them, I promise you'll love them. Melinda is such a talented writer, and I love the way she describes journaling as meeting yourself on the page. And this is exactly what we need to be doing to process our emotions as we go through recovery. Like her, I believe it's one of the most therapeutic things you can do. To quote Melinda again, your secret self emerges, a self that might not be revealed otherwise. The good news is that you can get some personal coaching from Melinda by enrolling in one of her online writing courses. I've done one and I can really recommend it. Just drop her a line at melindafergusonwriter at gmail.com. I'll put it in the show notes. So let me finish off this episode with a message from one of our members. This is a message from our members chat group from Nicolene. Earlier in the process, I just couldn't see myself never drinking again. And now I just feel content with how much not drinking has given me. I know that if I start drinking, it will take over my life again. So I focus on that because I can see how easily one can forget the price you had to pay to drink. I am healthier and happier than I've been in a very long time. And I'm so grateful to have made it to nine months. This tribe has truly changed my life. Well done, Nicolene, that's brilliant. If you'd like to join our tribe and get the kind of results Nicolene did, just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. And if you'd like our latest PDF, which is called Sobriety Battle Plan, just write to Janet at tribesober.com and I'll send it to you right away. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to follow us and share the podcast and we'd be so grateful if you'll leave us a review. I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard, it takes courage and grit and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.